the rebellion against embodied cognition, ironically, comes in part from the way our bodies are designed. Uh, and so, you know, we rebel against this because of all of our sensory organs, our ears, our eyes, our mouth, our nose, are right up there in our head because they want to be connected to our brain. There's an embodied reason for that. It's much better to have vision attached on a much uh, smaller power cord to the brain than it is to run a 30 foot power cord down to your toes and have your eyes in your toes. So um, you can just perceive better. But, but by doing that, by having it all located in that way, I mean, if all of our sensory organs were in, in our right buttock and we, and it was connected to our brain, we wouldn't think of our brain perhaps as the center of our being. We would think of our butt as the center of our being. Uh, so so a lot of this perception of what's essential to our body just has to just follow from the way our bodies are designed. Welcome to the story of language, an original podcast series about language, linguistics, cognition and culture. My name is Christian Saunders and I am an English teacher. And throughout this series, I will be in discussion with Dan Everett, linguist, anthropologist, philosopher, and author. In this episode, we discuss embodied cognition and the uncontroversial fact that the brain is an organ of the body, which then leads to the very controversial conclusion that our brain is no more important than our skin and that imagining the world as if you had eyes in your toes can lead to some revolutionary new thinking. If you would like to contact us, you can find us on Twitter at Story of Language, or you can send us an email at storyoflanguage at gmail.com. This is episode 12 of The Story of Language. I think we should probably start with the the very obvious question, which is, what is embodied cognition? Embodied cognition uh, is the uncontroversial idea that our brains are, are organs of our body. I mean, it starts with that very uncontroversial idea. But ever since uh, Descartes and actually since the Bible, um, we have believed that there is an immaterial and a material aspect to human beings and that our mind or our soul some people distinguish those some people think they're the same other people think they're both kind of silly ideas is our mind is an immaterial uh component which is somehow emerges from our brain or merges from our body and this goes back to descartes who argued that the mind was what distinguished uh, humans from other creatures and that no other creature had a mind, and therefore they were just meat machines. And we see this in, in a lot of science fiction today, and a lot of talk that otherwise serious scientists do. Um, and it's not totally trivial either, but so you have films like The Matrix, which is a, an entire film series based on this brain in a vat kind of idea that we can actually have minds without bodies and, and we couldn't tell the difference uh, if that were the case. And so we could actually be 
uh, controlled by a vast computer network or matrix that it keeps us in line and uses us to, uh, you know, to power the computer. There's also the other, another aspect of that that you see in a movie like Johnny Depp's Transcendence, which is the idea that since my mind is the software that runs on the, within the hardware of my body, well, just like for a computer, the software can run on many different uh, platforms. And so my body is just one possible platform. And therefore, if I start to die and we have the technology, we can just upload my software, my brain, my mind, my experiences to a computer. But embodied cognition says that really those are very, those are not possible scenarios. When you, when your body dies, you're dead. There's no way to get around that. You might preserve, you know, a few memories in a robot somewhere, but uh, you know, it's not you, it's a tin can. Uh, walking around that doesn't think like you. So, so there's a lot of debate about this. And so, um, and it's the same kind of debate we had when the first programmable computing languages came out, um, such as Lisp. And, and you had people like Herb Simon, whom I ref, you know, respect very much. He was um, an occasional colleague when I was in Pittsburgh and I was on the computational linguistics program, which was a joint program between the University of Pittsburgh and Carnegie Mellon. And Herb Simon was at Carnegie Mellon, and once in a while he would come by these meetings. Nobel Prize winning economist and, and pioneer in psychology and computer science. And, and he said, well, when a computer is, um, you know, working, it's not simulating thinking. I mean, it is thinking. It's just thinking. So there's artificial intelligence. It's really just intelligence. I mean, so a lot of people feel this way. So, so the the idea of embodied cognition is that our minds, our brains, our minds are ways of talking about our brains uh, when we don't fully understand how our brains work. That's my view of the mind, and it's not just mine. So mind, when, whenever I mention mind, I'm simply revealing my ignorance about the brain. One of the first people to really address this in a, in a challenging way that has puzzled a lot of philosophers or challenged them is one of my favorite philosophers, one of the smartest philosophers, best philosophers, in my opinion, of the 20th century, uh, was Hilary Putnam. And Hilary Putnam, uh, he was a mathematician and a philosopher. He was heavily influenced by Peirce and James and the pragmatists, but also charted his own course. Interestingly, Hilary Putnam went to high school with Noam Chomsky, and they were friends all the way through high school. And they went to college together, and uh, they, they were best buddies. So, um, although they disagreed about a lot. So Putnam says, um, well, let's imagine that you're a brain in a vat and you say, snow is white. What does that mean? Well, I'm a human being and if I'm walking around with my body and I say snow is white, that's true if and only if snow is white. So I make a statement and the truth of that statement is based on how it corresponds to the world. This is also a controversial theory of truth, but let's just take it for discussion to get to Putnam's points. So what do I mean by snow? Okay, so snow is white is true if and only if snow is white. The first snow is white is in quotes and the second one is without quotes. And this is called the disquotational theory of meaning, which is basically the meaning of the sentence in quotes has to correspond to the meaning in the world which doesn't have quotes. So if you're reading and you see that philosophy has produced this brilliant thesis that snow is white, if and only if snow is white, you may not be impressed. But it is an, 
it is a, a theory of how truth works, this quotational uh, truth. Um, so what he says is, but we still don't know what we mean by snow. A robot could say that under the same truth conditions that we say it. But a robot's never experienced snow. It might have seen it, it might have felt it, but it doesn't have any body to transmit to it the meaning of snow and the experience of snow. So he says, I am a semantic externalist. I believe that the meaning of our semantics comes from our interaction with the world. So when a computer says snow is white, what they mean by that is little bits of information that are coming to me electronically provoke in me the response snow is white. So snow to me are bits of inf is, is a series of bits of information. But snow to you is a white cold substance that you can roll around in and sled on and, and uh, slid on and wreck and kill yourself and watch your family burn to death. Um, snow has very different experiences, very different uh, meanings for us because we have bodies. And so he says, um, if you believe that you get your meaning of the world from your experience in the world, you're a semantic externalist, and most philosophers are, I think, and if you believe that the meaning of a sentence has to correspond to the disquotational fact about the world, snow is white if snow is white, then you can't believe the body is, the, the brain is uh, think something in a vat. It's in a body. It has to be in a body. So I think that's uh, quite convincing. I mean, it's controversial. One thing Putnam says about it, which is interesting, he says, yeah, a lot of people object to it when I say this, but they all accept disquotational theory of meaning and they all accept semantic externalism. So it doesn't seem to me that their denial is coherent. And, and I tend to agree with him. If he's established anything through that argument, it is that we know the world because we have a body and not because we're a mind or a brain in a vat. So that's a first major step. And what it means is you can't upload your, your mind because there is no such thing. It's just a brain. You know, and, and we see this in some obvious ways that are often not reflected upon, which, so for example, if a student takes a test when they're ill, their score is probably going to be below par. Uh, that's because their brain is affected by their body. It's built into their body and you can't think without it. So, so, so what we've established is that we need a body to have a brain. We need a body to learn about the world. But what does that mean about what's in the brain, okay? Are there representations in the brain? Are there symbolic representations in, in the brain? Or is the brain no more symbolic than the kidney? And does it just have neuroelectronic firings that are uh, causing us to think we're thinking or to have the, the things that we have? So maybe snow to me is nothing more so it's to a computer, a snow is just electronic bits. And to me, a snow is just electronic bits mixed with some chemistry in my brain. So, so maybe, even though we've established that we need bodies, we still haven't said anything to really deter the idea that our brain is just software. So we have to go further. And some people have argued on all of these proposals, there's embodied cognition and there's radical embodied cognition. Always. There's always a radical version. Yeah, anything you take like this. So what's the difference? Embodied cognition um, in a non-radical view says, 
you can't have a brain without a body. The brain is just an organ of the body. The brain is not, the mind is not just the software in the brain. The brain is a concrete entity and that's all you need to talk about. I might place inaccurately perhaps, but my first guess is that someone like Patricia Churchland would be someone who finds embodied cognition makes a lot of sense, but she's not radical. I could be totally wrong. She could call me tomorrow and say, um, hell yes, I'm a radical uh, embodied cognitive science. So then the radical ones, and I won't mention any names, although the name Chimero does come to mind. The radical embodied cognition um, people believe there are no symbols. There's no representation in the brain. The brain and the body together resonate with their environment to produce certain kinds of actions. And there are, you know, Rick Grush, actually, a philosopher at, uh, who used to be my colleague at the University of Pittsburgh and then moved to the University of California, San Diego. Rick Grush has come up with um, some interesting mathematical models for how this might work. And, and so the radical cognitive scientists are doing something very sophisticated, using a lot of mathematics and a lot of, you know, programs that can, that can try to show how this might work. So these, these are not people, you know, who are just saying crazy things, uh, because it's difficult for us to think of the brain without thinking of signs and symbols. <clears throat> and I'll get back to that, because I can't think of the brain without signs and symbols. I'm a Persian, and, and Charles Peirce would, would just be furious if, you know, he would give them a good thrashing if they said that you could have a brain without signs and symbols. So um, we'll get back to that. But, but at the same time, there's this discussion of the embodied mind. There are two other discussions going on that are very closely related. One of them is Andy Clark and David Chalmers' view of the extended mind. And then there is the view of the embedded mind and for want of a better advocate, I will put myself there. So I start off dark matter of the mind with the question, with, with the statement that what's most important is not as not what is in the mind, but what is the mind in? Uh, what culture is the mind in? All right. So extended cognition is largely the idea that um, I can offload some of my cognitive tasks to things around me, you know, like my iPhone. And I could try to remember all the telephone numbers. And at one time in my life, I had to remember all the telephone numbers. So I didn't have many friends because it wouldn't have done me any good. I couldn't, couldn't have called them anyway. You know, we had, now I have this vast number of friends. And so it takes about, you know, one bit on my iPhone. We offload these. I used to have to worry about reading a map and remembering the directions to get somewhere. You know, half the time now, like I'm going to go camping tomorrow and I, have, I haven't looked at a map. I have no idea where this place is. I just know that I'm going to type, I'm going to keyboard, key it into my GPS on my, uh, my Ford pickup and it's going to take me there. So my, my phone in that sense is an extension of my mind. Um, we already have this in the body, as David Chalmers points out. So somebody who's lost a leg and gets, you know, an artificial limb has extended their body. That limb is integrated into their body. And now their body is, uh, you can't, you know, it's difficult to use the word handicapped anymore, simply because we have the technology to make you unhandicapped. Uh, not in every way, but Pistorius, was that his name, the guy who? Yeah, the South African guy, yeah. He, with artificial limbs, he could, he could outrun a lot of uh, people who didn't have artificial limbs, who had real athlete legs. This was his body. Those were part of his body. And so we already have the notion of extended body. 
And so extended mind is sort of that. Now there's another aspect of extended mind. So one is my mind is a pencil. Even Peirce talked about this. Uh, Charles Peirce talked about the pen and paper being part of my mind. And when I leave things on paper, I've left mind droppings. You know, these are, these are things from my mind. And, and I can interact with these things, you know. So why do I take notes when I'm in a class? Most students today don't, so they do very poorly on exams. I, I mean, it's like a cultural, it's a retrograde cultural movement. Are they, are they taking notes on laptops? Is that what they're doing? Or? No, they, they just stare. Really? Uh, so wow. uh, <laughs> they're hoping that I'm going to give them, and I do actually, I'm, I, I, I am an enabler. Uh, because I give them uh, PowerPoints of my lectures, and my lectures are recorded. So, so they're using the computer and my willingness to give up my time that I could be using for creating groovy kinds of things to just, you know, putting down these words that I develop for class. Anyway, um, so they're using the computer as part of their extended mind. And, and we're using, you know, I'm and we all do this now. We have these notes. So I look at my notes. Or, I, for example, I go to my diary, and I, which I try to keep daily but haven't been for some time. Uh, and I look at it. Oh, I forgot that I did that. Or I forgot that I did this. So uh, my diary becomes an extension of my mind. It's, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's memory. And it's causally connected with my mind because reading my diary can lead me to think New, evaluate myself in new ways and, and think of, of new possible future uh, directions. But as, as Andy Clark points out, the f extended mind is an in effect a superclass uh, of embodied mind because the first place the mind extends to is the body. So the embodied mind is the mind extended through the body. You know, so it's just, and, and if you look at an octopus, they're the perfect example. We would not be having debates about this if we were all octopi, because we would, they have nerve cells and thinking components in their arms, in their tentacles. So they have a distributed cognition, and in a sense, so do we, but theirs is much more obvious than ours, you know. So uh, the extended mind is, is a superset of the embodied mind. And then the embedded mind is, in a sense, the extension of the external environment into our brains. So I, uh, I grew up eating a certain kind of food, and I think that food tastes best. If I grew up eating another kind of food, I would think that food tastes best. I, I grew up hearing certain kinds of talk, so I grew up thinking that kind of talk is natural. I grow up hearing certain kinds of concepts, certain cultural values. I see certain knowledge structures and I see certain social roles. And these are the things that I adapt. So my mind is in a sense an inverse extension. I am being pierced through my brain with all of these things in the external world. So my brain extends out to the external world. The external world extends into my brain. So we have the extended, the embodied, the uh, embedded mind, and these are all consistent with one another. I suppose it's difficult for me, and 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 maybe this is this is part of the the reason why embodied cognition is is you know controversial, is because no matter how much we we can kind of extend our cognition, 
the brain is always at the center of it in terms of um, like e even if you have, let's say, muscle memory, like a golf swing or or an action that you do at work every day. Um, is is that information really stored in the muscle or is it just is it just so automatic that we don't think about it, but it's still stored in the brain. I mean, it feels like no matter how much we extend it, it's still the center of the of the universe, so, so to speak. Yeah, but that applies also to the heart and the circulatory system. So, um, you know, I have blood going through my fingertips and blood uh, lots of places. And uh, that doesn't take away the fact that if you stab me in the heart, all that other blood doesn't matter. You know, so yeah, if you shoot me in the head, um, it doesn't matter what I've got on my iPhone. I'm not going to use it anymore. So the brain is an organ and it has functions to play. The fact that you talk about an embodied mind, extended mind, embedded mind, doesn't mean that the brain is irrelevant. It just means that it is, it is an organ in a network that includes the body and the external environment. And, and it, is, it is, of course, the hub of that network, but so is the heart. You know, I can, I can eat high cholesterol foods and lead my heart to stop. So my heart is connected to the external environment. It's not an autonomous pump in my body, but it's affected by my body and it's affected by the society in which I live. If I grew up in Japanese society, my heart would be less adversely affected by the food that I eat than growing up in Texas. Uh, fried, fried chicken and gravy, to me, is better than sushi, but <laughs> it's a bad choice. <laughs> it's, and, so, and it's not good for my heart. Eventually it could kill my heart, but please my brain. So there are all these, uh, you know, there are conflicts even within the organs of our body. But to say that the brain has a function is not to uh, eliminate the possibility that it's embodied. Some of the real controversy emerges when people say, well, I, I never said that the body couldn't influence the brain, but that's trivial. Everybody knows that. So in what sense is it a real breakthrough to show uh, that the, the brain is embodied? Well, that's where radical you know, it's not just the place where radical embodied cognition enters, but, but when you start to talk about designing robots that can simply, you know, bump into things and then they know not to bump into them anymore. And they, they, they do certain things and then they, they know how to do those things. And yet they don't have a brain uh, or, or they, don't have, they don't have a brain that represents things in terms of symbols. And that's really where it comes down to, do we need symbols? If you can design a program that can, ex that can simulate learning without linguistic representation. So we, we, then we go back to Jerry Fodor, who, who died a few years ago and who developed the uh, interesting and I think uh, largely incorrect uh, theory of the language of thought. Um, and the reason I think it's incorrect is not because I don't think we have a language of thought, but because I don't think that its primary component is syntactic composition, is syntax, syntax. But let's go ahead and grant that point. So if Jerry Fodor is right, embodied, radical embodied cognition cannot be right because there have to be linguistic-like representations in the brain for us to think. That's what thinking involves. And somebody says, so are you denying thought to my uh, dog because my dog doesn't have language? And Fodor would probably say, as many have said, well, you, your dog doesn't have an external language, but it has a language of thought. There's no other way. And, and in that, Fodor agrees with C.S. Peirce, uh, because Peirce would say that all living creatures think through signs. 
And actually, when we think about it, then the people who are radical embodied cognitive cognitionists, uh, uh, they are overlooking the fact that even if our brain is nothing but chemicals and meat uh, and electricity, those are all signs and they're all being interpreted. One chemical gets interpreted by another chemical. One uh, electric shock, you know, electric spark is interpreted by something else. So the whole world works on the interpretation of signs. It's not simply, uh, the brain is not simply a Rube Goldberg machine. Um, it is, um, some people make it that way, but it is uh, a, an organ for the interpretation of signs. The heart is an organ for the interpretation of signs. The liver is an organ for interpretation of signs. But what makes the brain different is that it actually offers up a symbolic interpretation of what it's doing. It can. I suppose that, um, and this is a question I have, I have for you, but I suppose that I've just been conditioned to believe that, you know, me, who I am, everything about me is stored in my brain. And, you know, the argument for embodied cognition to me, you know, it's, it's, it's logical, it's convincing, but I somehow, I just, <laughs> and again, I'm sure that it's just, you know, conditioning, but I just have this idea that I am stored up here, you know, and that it seems plausible to me that one day, um, and, you know, you see uh, people like Elon Musk, for example, talking about, you know, brain to computer interfaces, um, you know, implants. And it kind of seems plausible to me that, that, that somehow we're going to be able to transfer like what we know, our memories at least, maybe not the power of human thinking, but at least some of this will be able to be stored externally. Um, yeah, well, that's part of the extended mind hypothesis. So this is very interesting because if you implant a chip, then you're talking about the embedded mind. And if you um, upload part of your memory, then you're talking about the extended mind. I already upload memories of mine by typing them into the computer. So that's not impossible. Well, what what the embodied mind would deny is the ability to, whatever I upload to the computer, it doesn't wind up being me. There's a gestalt here that is me, and it's not going to be captured apart from my body. So sure, some of my memories, let's say we could, we knew exactly in Einstein's brain where he had enveloped, he, he had his thoughts on relativity, and we could stand, extend a hypodermic needle in there and suck that out and put it somewhere so we always had that. But that's not Einstein. That's just uh, the part of his brain that thought about, uh, you know, and somebody, well, you could suck out the whole brain. Well, not no, not really, you couldn't. Um, I think a lot of these impressions about our self being in our brain is where our eyes are. Our eyes are real close, are in our head. So we see the world through there and we think through there. But if our eyes were in our butt uh, and we had to walk around looking through our butts, we might not have the same attitude towards towards our brain and our head. Um, you know, we might think all my all my consciousness is in my butt uh, because that's where I'm getting my visual images and that's my perspective of the world. Perish the thought, or our toes, or our chest, or our our nipples. If our nipples were just eyes and we had to walk around bare chested, looking at the world through our our nipples, and we our faces were just just had a mouth and a nose, and that's all. Or if our nose were in our elbow and our 
our mouth were over in our, you know, on our stomach, we would have very different ideas. It's just that it turns out that the human head, which is the result of tens of millions of years of evolution and modification, has evolved the way it has to fit the brain in it. And the brain is an incredibly important organ for us. It consumes 25% of all the calories that we consume. 20 to 25% go to the brain. So uh, uh, since I have a very powerful brain, I say that I can always eat more than anybody else. But unfortunately, <laughs> that's not how it works. And if I'm thinking really hard, I'm not burning any more calories, unfortunately, if, I, if I'm playing a video game or watching television. So there's no point in thinking hard, just watch television. But, but what, is the, what, what, what is the tradition that this comes from, the idea of the mind being in the brain? I mean, is it, is it, was Aristotle, you know, the first person to, you know, to promote this idea or is it older than that? I mean. Well, Descartes said the mind was in the pituitary gland. Uh, that's wrong, by the way. Uh, so that was his guess. Um, you know, so, you know, it's, Aristotle didn't think the mind was in the brain. I mean, the, the brain, the ancient Egyptians sucked the brain out. They didn't think that was that important for the transportation to the netherworld. This could be a comment on the quality of their pharaohs. But basically, uh, it's just they didn't identify it with, uh, you know, we've identified various organs of the body with our being, you know, the heart and the liver and and, and the brain. We know today that the cognitive processes take place largely and primarily and are controlled by the brain. Uh, but that was not always the case. Now, the, yeah, the first person in the Western world to talk about cognitive processes, this is one reason it really irritates me when we hear about 1956 being the, uh, you know, the cognitive revolution. Um, there never was a cognitive revolution. Aristotle had us thinking about cognitive processes. Uh, Locke had us thinking about cognitive processes. David Hume, Bishop Berkeley, William James, Charles Sanders Peirce, Frege, Russell, everybody was thinking about cognitive processes. But then there was, at the time, there was uh, radical behaviorism, not just behaviorism, but radical behaviorism, as developed by B.F. Skinner, and he said, you know, there's something in the head, but we can't see it. I can't see the mind. Uh, and so I'm going to study the things I can see and what I can see are human behaviors. And if I can predict people's behaviors, then I don't need to study the mind. I already know what's going on because I can predict their behaviors. And wherever that's at, I don't really care. Uh, and that's radical behaviorism. It's certainly not the, uh, you know, the association for uh, the American Behavioral Association, ABA, still has an annual B.F. Skinner lecture, and I gave it a few years ago. It was attended by over a thousand people, which was a small subset of the conference. So behaviorism is alive and well, and it, it really was never vanquished by the cognitive revolution. The only thing that was vanquished, perhaps, I'm not even sure about this, was Skinner's radical behaviorism. But cognition is obviously very important. It's an old ancient tradition in the West. Uh, and to uh, a different degree, it is, is, it, is an important tradition in the East, in China. Uh, in my book, Dark Matter of the Mind, I argue that uh, the philosophy that best captures, which I didn't start off thinking this, but the philosophy that best captures my view of the mind is Buddhism, that we are basically a series of experiences united by memory. That's who I am. That's who Dan Everett is. Uh, and, and a lot of those memories are false. 
So who am I? I mean, we're extended in the universe. We take place in the universe. My big gripe with embodied cognition is that I do believe that it overlooks the fact that even if you get rid of things that look like sentences from the head, you still have signs. So I, you can't get away from signs. Even if you say that, you know, we have little algorithms operating through neurochemical and electronic uh, functions in the brain, those are still signs. Uh, but they're not represented as linguistic, you know, they're not linguistic signs, but we don't need linguistic signs, you know. However, I think it's more than that. I think it's more than just indexes and, and icons in the brain. I think we have symbols and we have to think symbolically. So however those symbols are instantiated in the brain, uh, they are responsible for us having concepts and they are responsible for us uh, labeling and knowing objects in the world. So I uh, would reject uh, quite strongly radical embodied cognition. Uh, at one time I wanted to, I, was, I really found it appealing and I wanted to look at it and still may they continue to pursue their aims, but I don't think we can get away from symbols. Well, I wanted to talk um, a little bit uh, about something that Hilary Putnam said, because I know you mentioned him at the beginning. So he, he was talking about how... Um, how basically your 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 type of cognition, so human cognition versus dog cognition versus hummingbird cognition, uh, gives you a different access to truth in the world. And he said, to claim that we have direct access to and conscious knowledge of an objective reality, i.e. a God's eye view of the world is wrongheaded. And so... You know, it reminds me of what you were talking about before, about how, um, you know, a computer doesn't have an experience of snow the same way that, it, that a human does. So, so maybe, maybe we could have one day, you know, we could have human, maybe human thinking in a computer. But, <laughs> and again, I'm sorry that I, I'm sorry that I, I'm sorry that I'm finding it hard to separate this 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 deeply embedded idea I have in my mind of of the mind being here, you know, um, but but maybe we're going to have cognition in a computer which is sort of quasi-human, right? But not not completely. Yeah, I think that it's computers can't think until they need to urinate, um, and and so you know this is a ways off uh, until they have bodily functions and they have emotions, and this is something people often forget. If you don't have emotions you don't have a mind. That's, that's really old. Even reptiles have emotions. Uh, this is something that goes back tens of millions of years in our evolutionary history. And until you can develop computers with motions and not just things that say, Hal, I am afraid, Hal, or something like that. Um, I mean, I don't know what that means. What, is, what does it mean for that computer to say it's afraid? You know, do we see it sweating? Do we see it uh, shivering? Do we? It doesn't experience fear like we do. It doesn't experience love like we do. And you can't program that in because the body is required to experience these things. You know, you can have interactions between computers. You can have computers that, that's, that start to model, um, you know, human logic a bit more that that we find out more about human cognition so we can program a little bit more of this in. But the other thing about computers is they're not embedded. They don't know culture. So they can never understand meaning. When John Searle argued in his Chinese room uh, thought experiment that 
you can actually translate very quickly if you're a computer without understanding what you're translating. Um, that's absolutely right. And a computer can't understand what it's translating because nobody has a theory of computer semantics. There's no way for a computer to, to generate or uh, understand things with, with semantics like we do. So, and that's because they don't understand culture. So another example that Searle gave was in what he calls the background, what I call dark matter of the mind, which I think is a little bit more elaborate than his background. But you know, you get a computer that can follow a script and say a man walks into a restaurant, he orders a hamburger, the hamburger arrives and it's burnt. The man stands up, he's angry, and he storms out. And then you ask the computer, did he pay for the hamburger? And the computer says very cleverly, no, he didn't pay for the hamburger. And so all the programmers are really happy. But uh, Searle says, let me ask the computer a question. Did he stick the hamburger in his ear? And the computer says, I don't know. Did he wear it as a hat? I don't know. You know, did he put it behind his lower lip? I don't know. Uh, so you have to understand the world through your body, through these, this semantic externalism and, and, and the things that Putnam is also talking about that, that Peirce talked about to acquire through your own culture uh, the knowledge of the background. And you can't program this into computers. You have to experience objects to be able to project what their likely properties are. And sure, so when I walk out in the backyard with my dog with very good sense of smell, she surveys the whole backyard and her nose is working, her nostrils are working, and she's taking in information that is inaccessible to me. I couldn't, I don't smell anything she's smelling. And she immediately has a mental map of all the wildlife in the area. She knows what's out there. And if I let her out of the fence, she would rush straight to the strongest smell. Uh, but I'm not gonna let her out of the fence. But I don't know what's out there. I have no sense of smell. That's why if I walk in the jungle, um, I would like to have a dog with me. Um, because the dog, you know, if it's paying attention, and sometimes dogs don't pay attention, but most of the time they, they are sniffing and they will tell you uh, in advance because they have a di different cognitive relationship to the world. I cannot know the truth of smells the way a dog knows the truth of smells. And a dog can't know it the way that a bear does, which has seven times the uh, olfactory discrimination and distance ability that uh, a dog does. We, we all have different experiences with the world. I don't, you know, it's like uh, uh, David Foster Wallace's great commencement speech on what is water and where he, you know, two fish, uh, if you ask them, how's the water, they probably wouldn't know what the what water is. What are you talking about? You know, it's just this thing, you know, we don't, we don't experience it the same way. It's just, uh, it's just the universe. It's like asking us, what does it feel like to live in air? I don't know. I mean, I, I live in air. I don't know. I would know what it feels like to live in water because I would live, not live very long and that would be a very unpleasant experience. But so, so these things are, are the results of different bodies and having different cognitive experiences. So our cognition is shaped and Hilary Putnam is absolutely right about that by the bodies that we have. Yeah, and, and, and I wanted to ask you as well a little bit more about the cultural aspect of this, because as we've kind of talked about before, you know, there are some people who say that language is ambiguous, but, but normally it's absolutely not ambiguous. It's disambiguated by all of our cultural knowledge and context and all of those things. But um, I wonder how much of culture 
is required in in embodied cognition like i mean how much of um embodied cognition re relies on on dark matter well the problem is that none of these I, I can't think of a single person working in embodied cognition of any variety or even philosophy of the mind such as hillary putnam or john searle who take culture seriously and i know of a lot of anthropologists these days who don't take culture seriously um you know they're they're more you know you want to study what somebody eats um, you measure the cal you, you know you measure the calories they're consuming every day and you, those those are all important scientific objectives but they take you away from the bigger picture of what culture is and how important it is and a lot of anthropologists a lot of scientists throw up their hands and say nobody knows what culture is it's so ambiguous and so hard to define um, but I don't think that's true, and I offer definitions of it in Dark Matter of the Mind. You can reject those, but they're steps toward more articulated concept of what culture is. And if you don't take that into account, and you don't take the body into account, you're going to come up with this bizarre idea that, that the mind is disconnected from the, the body and the world. One way we see this is in the idea that our language is the expression of our thoughts entirely. So when I talk about Peter Ham having recursive thought in a non-recursive language, people say, that doesn't even make any sense. How can you have recursive interpretations of language when the language doesn't have any recursion? And the idea there is we interpret the world in our brains. Language is an aid to doing that. So the more like our thought language is, in some degrees, the more easy it is to understand language. Um, but it doesn't have to be just like our thought. So in my book, How Language Began, I talk about G1 languages, G2 languages, and G3 languages. And the way I originally defined those is G1 languages are languages that have just linear order and symbols. G2 languages have symbols, linear order, and hierarchical structure and G3 languages have symbols, linear order, hierarchical structure, and recursion. My friend Jeff Pullum said, I'm not sure what you're trying to get at because mathematically I can write a recursive grammar for any of those. Uh, so they're all equivalent to a recursive grammar. And I said, yeah, that's not what I'm getting at. Uh, what I'm getting at is that initially it was the experiential difference and the ease of invention of, a, of simply a linear grammar. But but I've come to realize through those challenges, um, and fortunately, Jeff is part of my, the environment in which my mind is embedded, uh, and therefore I can avail myself of his uh, intelligence. What I want to say now about how those differ is that if you have symbols in a linear order, but you have recursive interpretations, there's obviously a covert compositionality. The way I compose the meaning of all these symbols is not reflected in the syntax. So it's not an overt connection with the syntax. I use context to do this. And as you said, we all use context. Context is very important. Many philosophers argue that context is far less significant than compositionality. So I would say this, that compositionality is a variable. And uh, in some languages, it's overt compositionality is less important than others. You want to see how compositionality works without language. You know, think of a series of events that you've witnessed in the world and think of how you tell a story about them 
and how you think about them in your brain. You put all these meanings together and you come up with a coherent interpretation of the things you've experienced, but there's no syntax. It's just context. And you're gonna interpret it all through the, through the events and the cognitive ability you have. Somebody might say, well, you're using syntax in your brain. That's fine. Uh, I'm talking about language in the world. So a G1 language is a language with the most covert possible type of compositionality. A G2 language is one where the compositionality is slightly more overt. So I can say the big boy uh, spoke about John. Okay, so the big boy, that's a phrase. It's got hierarchical structure, spoke about John. That sentence has hierarchical structure probably you know, it's not, it, these things don't wear their analyses on, on their surface forms. Uh, Chomsky's right about that. Um, but then I can say, uh, the big boy spoke about John. John is a great guy. But if I want to put this together in a single recursive or embedded type of sentence, which is a precursor to recursion, it isn't recursion. Um, and I often tell people, even if you found an, an embedded clause in Peter Hahn, that's not recursion. You haven't shown that Pidaha has recursion. You'd have to show that there's no upper bound on that. And if you can't show that, then it doesn't have recursion. Anyway, nobody pays attention to that. But, um, but we can interpret two sentences like, the moon is made of green cheese, or so Peter says. That's a separate sentence. But that separate sentence changes the truth conditions of the first sentence. So the moon is made of green cheese, is true only if the moon is made of green cheese, right? That gets back to Putnam's point. But if I say John said the moon is made of green cheese, that's only true, that sentence, if John said it. It doesn't matter if the moon's made of green cheese. I don't care if the moon's made of green cheese. I want to know if John said it. And so the truth conditions of the embedded clause vary because we're looking at the truth conditions of the entire clause when we interpret it. However, this is not an argument for overt compositionality, because if I say the moon is made of green cheese, and you start to say, well, is it? And I say, no, no, wait, I'm not done. So Peter says, and then you say, oh, so this separate sentence now has its truth conditions uh, modified by this other separate sentence, uh, or so Peter says. And, and this is a point that a lot of people miss. So in that example, so if I say, Peter said the moon is made of green cheese, that's overt compositionality, and the truth conditions depend on the matrix clause. But if I say the moon is made of green cheese, or so Peter says, now that's covert compositionality, and uh, the truth conditions are, are slightly more fluid. But one interpretation is that uh, the moon is made of green cheese. We're not worried about its truth conditions. We're worried about, P did Peter in fact say that? This is something that is overlooked by a lot of uh, people uh, in fact, just about everybody, as far as I can tell. So I'm building this into the new book that I'm writing on overt versus covert compositionality uh, and the course that I'm going to be teaching for the Brazilian Linguistic Society. This has to do with the type of society that we're in as well. And what I argue is that for societies of intimates in which everybody knows everybody, and, and I get this idea of society of intimates from Tom Givon, who's an irascible, cantankerous, uh, emeritus professor from the University of Oregon who lives in Colorado, but who is, uh, in spite of the fact that he regularly pisses me off, is one of the smartest uh, and best linguists that has ever operated. He's just a brilliant thinker. And he has a brand new book out on coherence, 
and he further expands on his idea, Society of Intimates, which I used quite a bit in Dark Matter of the Mind. You, you know, your family and your home is a society of intimates. Everybody knows everybody. You don't have to say as much to your family. To ex They get more contextual information from you than people who don't know you because they know the context of your life. So the more intimate your society, the less you need to say overtly and the more, the bigger the role of context. And so, you know, if I know that, if, if I know that you read the Wall Street Journal daily and you know that I read the Wall Street Journal daily, well, I can talk about the stories in the Wall Street Journal um, or I can say, remember what uh, reporter so-and-so said and you know immediately who that reporter is and you know what they said. Uh, so that's not overt syntax. That's just using the resources of the mind, memory, and the experiences we've internalized. And so the people who claim that compositionality is always required in every language to be fully explicit simply are taking language outside the brain and making it something that it isn't. Um, and therefore, an embodied, embedded cognitive perspective, especially the embedded cognitive perspective, uh, can make more sense of linguistic variation than the idea that language is the true instrument of thought as opposed to symbols and images and things like this. Uh, language helps thought, and syntax helps symbols. But syntax is not required for symbols, and language is not required for thought. If we're looking at... Um, language, you know, today as a kind of slice of time. What I'm wondering is how embodied cognition works over, over, you know, over, let's say, geological time, you know, when, like, how much of what you might call context comes from the fact that the language that we use, and maybe even the way that we think, it has been a, the, is, is the result of a continuous process of evolution. So it's not as if the way that we think sprung into into being in 2020, you know, it's it's a result of, 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 like you say, millions of years of evolution. So is embodied cognition also uh, perhaps contains kind of historical elements? Absolutely. Um, we can't understand embodied cognition until we understand the evolutionary history of the body that we're talking about. Hirsch talked about this a bit, you know, he, he talked about instincts, and he was sort of agnostic about whether instincts were inborn through the genes or not. So he said there are two sources for our knowledge, ontogenetic and phylogenetic. And so phylogenetic knowledge, if we have that, it has to be an instinct because we were born with it. We were born with it through the experience of our, of our ancestors. And so, you know, in a Chomskyan perspective, uh, knowledge of grammar is phylogenetic. Um, whereas for, for me, knowledge of grammar is ontogenetic. It happens in the individual. So Peirce was kind of agnostic about that. He didn't see any reason, as I don't, to deny instincts outright. He just said, you know, this is getting back to Morgan's canon, the idea that you shouldn't impute a higher level of cognition that is necessary to explain the behavior. So you could see your dog could bring you a shoe and you could say, oh, my dog loves me and he's bringing me that shoe so that I can make my foot warm and all this. And that's all crap. You know, your dog's bringing you the shoe for much, you know, it's an index of a treat. Um, you know, I mean, it's just, just trying to get a treat out of you. My dog is very mercenary with me. So I wouldn't want to impute a whole lot of philosophical reasoning behind 
my dog's bringing me a shoe. Um, and I think the same thing is true of language. We find language is very rich system, but to impute to language, to say of language, it's all in the, it's all in the genes and all in the brain is to attribute um, a richer structure than maybe is necessary. Because if I can get by without saying that we have these genes for language, we just have brains and they don't have specific genes for language, then I've got a simpler model. The burden of proof is on the people who want to say that it's phylogenetic instead of oncogenetic. It doesn't mean they can't prove it. They might be able to prove it, um, in which case I stand corrected. I don't think they can prove it because it's such a complex hypothesis. Uh, and and it, is, it violates Occam's razor as well. Don't multiply entities beyond necessity. Why propose a universal grammar when you can get by without it? So Peirce showed how we interpret things, and he called it a universal grammar. But for him, and he showed this fairly clearly, it followed from logic. So to the, if you acquire logic, if you have a brain that can think logically, everything else follows. And, and this is an anathema to people who want to claim that it's all in the genes. So, so you can say, well, we have logic. And semiosis follows logical principles. Therefore, we don't need anything else. That's one model. And the other model is, yes, we think logically, and language requires logical principles, but it's not enough. We also have to have it in the genes. Well, you just have to provide the evidence for that. And maybe you want to say that it's child language acquisition. This is very interesting. When Jean Piaget studied child language acquisition, he thought of it as embodied cognition long before there was embodiment. So he talked about the sensory motor stage and how we acquire knowledge of the world and acquire our language via our bodies. And this is an anathema to modern US cognitive science, which gets me back to this so-called cognitive science revolution. What they mean by that is that in 1956, two days after Elvis Presley played on Ed Sullivan, we started thinking about cognition in a very unusual way. That's their revolution. That's the revolution. We think about cognition differently than it's been thought of for 2000 years. So uh, if you want to call that a revolution, that's fine. But one, one really interesting moment in some of the, the materials that, that you sent me when we were preparing for this, for this podcast, it was a study where they asked people to, to either nod their heads or shake their heads when they were listening to, to an argument. And the people that nodded their heads tended to look at the argument more favorably than those people who shook their heads. So it seems that, well, it seems to show that um, this, this embodied cognition can also work in reverse, that, which I think is also maybe controversial. I don't know that, that our bodies can actually do, the, do more thinking than our actual brains, or maybe our bodies can, can control what we think. Well, there's a lot of experiments that seem to show this. So, for example, if you hold your body in a certain way, you begin to think in a certain way. If, you, if you're assertive, you know, or, or, um, you're, going to, you're going to think in a certain way. I just, went, I just attended via Zoom a wonderful talk by Janet Worker, who's a visitor right now in Brain and Cognitive Sciences, very, very well-established professor of uh, cognitive science at the uh, University of British Columbia. And she was showing experiments with babies that showed when they were given certain kinds of teethers that either forced their uh, lips into a smile or blocked their tongue from moving. This affected the way they perceived the consonants as told to them by their caregivers. So 
Michael Arbib talks about mirror neurons. Uh, Gregory Hickok, uh, another neuroscientist, doesn't think much of mirror neurons, but uh, he's written a book called The Myth of Mirror Neurons. But if Janet Worker is right, she is um, providing additional evidence, not only for the embodied mind, but for mirror neurons, in which case I, I see you saying something and I want to perform those same actions. It's just a, it's just a reflection. But if I can't perform those same actions, then the idea and the experimental th uh, results are that I can't, I'm going to think about it differently. You know, when you talk about people not being able to chew gum and walk at the same time, this is just the fact that, you know, probably some people can't. I mean, I could do that, but I don't know if I can do three things or four things. At what point does it become overload? Because it takes a lot of cognitive ability to control my body and the very way that I control my body. So if I'm talking to you and you're smiling, I'm a lot happier about the talk. I don't care if you're really happy, but if you're smiling, then it makes me happier. So one of the awful things about trying to teach on Zoom is I'm not feeding off these personal reactions of my class. I walk into a classroom filled with 35, 40, you know, however many students, depending on the university, a couple of hundred at the University of Manchester, and I give a talk it could be a three-hour lecture, but when I walk out, I'm energized. I feel more energy than when I walked in. But when I'm giving a Zoom lecture and people are eating yogurt and they've got just the top of their head in the screen or, um, you know, they're not even on the screen in spite of my repeated messages to them to turn on their damn screen, uh, I, I leave and I feel, I feel drained. I feel tired. I'm more tired. I'm getting used to it. I'm accustomed mean myself to it. But when I get back in the classroom, I'm going to be just excited as I can be. And that's because my body resonates with its environment. And I see the signals that I'm getting from others. And, and so and th this also tells us that a blind person has a different type of cognition than a seeing person. So I, one of my good friends back in my Christian days was a blind pastor. And we were talking about pornography. And he says, you know, I have no temptation in that area, and I have never been tempted by pornography. He says, that's one good thing about being blind. And <laughs> I thought about it, and I thought, actually, that's not a good thing about being blind. I'd rather be tempted <laughs> by it than not ever never experience it. Uh, but, um, but it is a different, it, it does, your body affects what you can think about and, and the concepts that you have. And so maybe his concepts of the opposite sex or sex in general was much more healthy than the average person's. And he, uh, who knows, but he, did, he had to have thought about it differently. You know, we have neurodiversity. There, there are a lot of people who range across the autistic spectrum. At one end of the spectrum, they're wealthy and they work in Silicon Valley. And in the other end of the spectrum, um, they're relatively dysfunctional. But this is neurodiversity and our species needs it, but it grows out of different kinds of physical properties of the brain and physical properties of the body. So to me, ultimately, the idea of extended embodied and embedded cognition seems inescapable. And, and you know, if you take a lab like uh, Martin Fisher at the University of Potsdam, who's doing really exciting work, I visited his lab a couple of times. He has great PhD students and colleagues, and they do experiments on mathematics and, and things like the uh, the snark effect in which you know lower quantities are on the left and higher quantities are on the right given the order in which we count and they have little 
um, devices where you put your hand in and then you're asked to solve linguistic problems. And once you get over the idea that it's not going to grind your hand into mush and it's just a you know warm little fuzzy thing, they can measure how your fingers work when you're talking about math problems. And they, you know, my fingers followed the predictions that they would have made, you know. Wow. And, and yeah, there's also some other um, interesting experiments from embodied cognition, like the action sentence compatibility effect, you know, where uh, if you ask somebody to perform an action and the, like the direction of the action matches the, the words, then people do it faster than if the direction of the action doesn't match the words. So part of this is embodied cognition and part of it is linguistic relativity. You know, my son, Caleb, who wrote a book on linguistic relativity, which uh, I modestly believe to be the best book on the subject, um, I've attended his classes, you know, at the University of Miami in the past, you know, this irrelevant, uh, over-the-hill old man sitting in the back that nobody even notices. And, and he brings students up to the front. He's such a great teacher because he, he brings the students up to the front and he asks them to do things and then he slightly changes the language or their orientation and now that task that was so trivial they can't do. Uh, or he, he asks them to reassemble a scene and they will assemble it in the mirror image of what the scene actually is because they're facing the different direction now. But if he has somebody from another language that doesn't have that do that experiment, they will assemble it in exactly the correct direction. So there's, there's this complex set of factors that have to do with culture affecting language, language affecting culture, the body affecting the environment, the environment affecting the body, the body being in culture, culture being in the body uh, and in the mind. So the mind, this, this quaint idea that all of our soul and everything that's important to us is behind our eyes, between our ears, and you know, above our throat um, is just wrong wrong-headed, there's a nice metaphor, uh, is, to, is to have the wrong view of the head. Uh, in that sense, it's wrong-headed, and it's also bad thinking. And then in that sense, it's wrong-headed. I would like to see is be an unethical experiment. Somebody design a body before it's born. It's born with its, from its mother with its, uh, its mouth on its stomach and its eyes and its nipples and its uh, you know, nose on its elbow. And uh, it would be hard to put your elbows down. But, uh, how would you think about the head if, if these sensory organs were not in the head? And I think that the rebellion against embodied cognition, ironically, comes in part from the way our bodies are designed. You know, we rebel against this because of all of our sensory organs, our ears, our eyes, our mouth, our nose, are right up there in our head because they want to be connected to our brain. There's an embodied reason for that. It's much better to have vision attached on a much uh, smaller power cord to the brain than it is to run a 30 foot power cord down to your toes and have your eyes in your toes. So um, you can just perceive better. But, but by doing that, by having it all located in that way, I mean, if all of our sensory organs were in, in our right buttock and we, and it was connected to our brain, we wouldn't think of our brain perhaps as the center of our being. We would think of our butt as the center of our being. So a lot of this perception of what's essential to our body just has to, just follow from the way our bodies are designed. It's 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 absolutely fascinating to to think that. Well, I mean, the the immediate thought that comes to mind is, gee, I wonder how how religion would change as well. You know, if um, if 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 like you say, if our sensory organs were in a different part of our body. I don't know this relationship between you know the mind and the brain and the soul. Um, 
you know, it's, I feel like there's a strong link there. Yeah, well, religion makes a lot of its uh, living by uh, telling us to ignore the greatest sensory organs outside of our brain, which are in our crotch. <laughs> and and so religion wants to get past these sensory organs. It wants to act like they don't exist. But they are another center of cognition, and they, they exercise a very strong control over most of us most of the time. Well... I mean, I laugh, but but it's true. I mean, how many good, but mo probably mostly bad decisions have been made, you know, just because of of sex drive? I mean, yeah, and it's not just in the brain. I mean, if you um, you're going to think about sex more if you're not wearing any pants. That's where I'm putting my money. I'm I'm, and so the so the pinaha they think about sex a lot. They run around naked all the time, and you people say. Oh, then they're desensitized to the body. Oh, no, they're not. Uh, and there's not a lot of television or video games in the Amazon. So sex is a huge pastime. And, and these, these hunter-gatherers, uh, you know, they're not Puritans. The body's there to enjoy. And so uh, they don't deny this, this source of cognition. So I think it's overwhelmingly uh, correct uh, supported by the evidence to say that the, a form of embodied cognition has to be right and a form of extended mind has to be right and a form of embedded mind has to be right. Where I would disagree, and maybe this is due to my own lack of imagination, is I do not believe that we can ever escape signs and or that we can escape symbols and their importance for cognition. Therefore, if you have a version of embodied cognition that says you don't even need symbols, I would need a much greater uh, threshold of evidence to be presented than I have ever seen. For, for me, it's been it's been a, a fascinating discussion. I I think probably it's changed the way that I think about um, you know my own body, and um, yeah, it's been a kind of a revelation to me. So thank you, Dan. Well, thank you, um, and uh, just remember that uh, when the body goes, the brain goes, and uh, you know, that's the greatest symbol of embodied cognition. Nobody's going to out-survive their body. Um, and, and science isn't going to solve that for us. That's my prediction. Well, unless unless you're a, you're a Buddhist and you plan on getting reincarnated um, in a different body. I think this is all very healthy to realize that um, all of our professional lives that, that go through our brain are uh, just part of our body. And... Um, you know, there are other parts of our body that are more important um, in our immediate environment, such as family. Uh, so um, as the U.S. gets ready to, uh, in some way, celebrate its Thanksgiving tradition, um, we, see the, we see the most important extension of our bodies and our cultures and our society, which is our family. And these things... Uh, obviously are more important than professions. We talk to our family members and we really don't care what their profession is.